You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about vice presidents and Vogue. Vogue, Vogue, Vogue. (laughs) I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hahn. And we are your friendly and very laughy today Mm -hmm. host of Different Things Can Be Sad. And we are back with our regular programming this month. We mm-hmm. had our, our Freaky Friday episode last last time where Micah took over pop culture and I did the politics, but we're, we're switching it back. So we're back to normal. We're back to normal. But before we get into all that, Micah, how was your month? What did you get up to? It was really good. Um, I My boyfriend came home and we had a fun time. Aww. It was nice. It was his 21st birthday. Oh, love nothing in Canada because you've been no, drinking at nineteen. But, but now he can York. drink where he lives. Exactly. Um, yeah. Did you get sushi? We did multiple mm-hmm. times. You know, actually, I was on Instagram the other day, and these people I follow, um, who I think are from Calgary, they're like living in Vancouver for like six months, and they posted a picture at the sushi place you took me to, and it, it awesome. brought back a lot of fond memories. So the sushi place um, is closing <gasps> indefinitely because the building is um like no! something. I don't know. Like there's like problems with it, and I'm oh. so sad because I don't know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> that was some good sushi, sushi, guys. Like that is the best value and the best variety sushi place I've probably ever been to. Um, Vancouver, as Micah told me, is, is probably one of the best cities I've ever been to for sushi. So yeah. um, lots of sushi was consumed. Did you get up to anything else? I've just been living the last couple months of my undergrad, which is weird. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Next episode, will you be, you be like just about finished then, right? Yeah, I will be done, probably, and then I graduate officially in June. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to see the pictures of you with the little cap. I'm so excited. It's very exciting. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, what have well, you been Yeah, I had a, a, not a, not a super eventful month. Um, I did go to one big event. I went to see the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Dublin. Very and cool. I'd never been before. This was actually my first St. Patrick's Day in Ireland since I was like nine, maybe. Mm-hmm. And yeah, when I was younger, we used to always go like there'd be just local parades in our town and my like karate club or my dance class would be in it. So um, that was what we used to do back in the day. And um, I kind of, I thought I would go to this one because I would get FOMO if I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. all my friends in Australia like, you have to go to the one in Dublin. So I did. But it was like it was really good. It was beautiful mm-hmm. weather. It was a really lovely parade. But it was like literally ninety nine percent tourists. Like I'm not sure if there was any other Irish people there. There was like my friend and I, and that was that. That was pretty much it. I don't think I nice. I saw or heard another Irish person. But I think all those like American college kids who were on their spring break. Yeah. And, um. They were they were having a great time. They were they were. I, I had a friend who went last year. He was uh, studying yeah. abroad in Spain, which is very yeah. Study abroad destination for North Isn't America, it? and yeah. he went to Ireland for St. Patty's Day. Yeah, no, they're um, the, they were there. So um, mm-hmm. I hope. Yeah, I think everyone had a great time. I got um, an ice cream cone afterwards, and they had like dyed the cones green. So to be honest, nice. that was my highlight. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, did you do much reading this month? 
Um, I have been reading, but instead of suggesting you a book, because I don't think necessarily you'll like the books that I read this month, I'm going to suggest you, well, yes, that, but also (laughs) um, they were books from my youth. Uh, So instead of suggesting a book to you, I suggest that you reread things that you loved as a teenager. So I have been doing this and rereading the Gallagher Girl series which was just like the highlight of my life in 2012. It was so good. I, I loved it. I might have read a couple of the, is This is like a spy school or something, yes. isn't it? Is so it? it's about um, this girl who goes to spy school for girls. And it's, so it's a sporting school and I guess like an Eastern state in the States. And yeah. 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 I definitely read um, Cross so My Heart and Hope to Spy. That's the second one. So the first one okay. is I'd Tell You That I Love You and Then I'd ha- But Then I'd Have to Kill You. It's a great title. And yeah. she basically, she falls for one of the boys in town. Do they go to a carnival to- together or something? Yes. Yes, I remember this. So I absolutely loved these books when I was in high school, oh. like early high school. And I just, I've been very stressed lately and I've been reading like hundreds of pages a week for class and I was like you know what this is this is what I'm gonna do this is my self-care and while reading them I like I know I like started remembering like all of these things that I used to do is like reading Mm. with friends and like how much a part of these books were like a part of my friendships um it was so good I have this great anecdote where so the main love interest in the second half of the books is called Zach and there was this guy at my school named Zach, and this, like, the last book in the series came out when I was in, like, I guess my last year of high school. Like, I'd been reading them for a while, and my mm. best friend and I were, like, dying over how cute this boy Zach was in the book. Oh, no. And we were walking down the hall, and I was like, I just love Zach so much. Little did I know that actual alive human oh, person no, Zach no, was no. behind me. He'd been in a relationship for two years with a girl who I was friends with. Oh, oh no, Micah, you have like, a record. Yeah, I know. And so then he came up to my friend who I was talking to and was like, "Does she? Does she like me?" And she was like, "No, no, 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 no. She likes a boy in a, a spy fictional book. character called yeah. Zach. Who's so much cooler than you." Yeah, except he's yeah. not real. <laughs> oh, I love Whatever. that. I think I'm gonna yeah. have to to um reread that series I completely forgot about that I was like rereading them and I forgot all of these plot points and they get super like dark in like the last couple ones like shit actually goes down it's great wild I actually have um there was a book I bought I bought it when I was six years old and I know that because on the front cover I wrote property of Yasmin Lomax age six Um, (laughs) it is called seahorses the talisman turns out it is actually the second one in the series and i never read the first one nice. and it's by louise cooper and it's about a girl who like stays with her grandmother in cornwall in england and like i think she's canadian her name is tamsin which is very close to yasmin so i liked that mm-hmm. um and it has to do with these like evil horse spirits and also she's like a horse rider and i was never a horse girl so i'm not sure why i love this book so much <laughs> but i freaking loved it i reckon i read it at least every second year since I was yeah. six. Unfortunately, the author died in 2009. So that was oh, no. very, very sad. Yeah, because I would have loved to tell her how much this book meant to me. I'm not sure why I love it so much, but I, I really do. I love it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really good um, reading practice recommendation, Micah. Mm-hmm. Um, 
We'll have to throw a link to the Gallagher Girls down in the show notes because that was that was Ooh. a fun series. Oh, it's such yeah. a fun series. So much fun. Um, well, I read Normal People by Sally Rooney this month. That was my reading highlight. Um, so Sally Rooney is a young Irish writer. And I mean, I say young. I'm not trying to be like, oh, it's so cute that she read a book and like she's young. I just mean that she's like literally born on the same decade as us. She's like 28 now. And her first book came out when she's 25. So she's one of those like ridiculously accomplished people like Lord who make me feel bad about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love her. And um, the book is about two friends called Connell and Marianne. And they're from the West of Ireland and they get together in high school and kind of on and off mm-hmm. afterwards as they go through Trinity College in Dublin. So it's about this kind of ebbs and flows of their relationship. It's this kind of like a When Harry Met Sally kind of story of this mm-hmm. on again, off again relationship. But it's like much, it makes you feel much more uncomfortable. It takes you down some very dark paths in terms of like mental health and relationships, both, you know, romantic and familial um it is written without quotation marks which is like very strange and it's a little confusing at first but you definitely get used to it and the characters are just absolutely phenomenal they're very very complex and they have these really unique ways of seeing the world and they can um articulate that really well and in really really fascinating ways so i actually read it in like 24 hours and then i had to reread it because like they they were just so complex I didn't yeah. get them and I didn't get their relationship um but yeah that's one I would definitely recommend I recently as in this morning listened to an interview with Sally Rooney on the podcast the cut on Tuesday so it literally just came out yesterday okay. um and that was really fascinating so I'll pop a link to that in the show notes as well and then I went back and I read her first book conversations with friends and I just finished that today um I didn't like that as much. Do you never like, mm-hmm. you know, when you've kind of got one book by an author that you really, really love, and I'm just not sure if like yeah, anything else can kind of compare. I think it suffered from that in my mind. Um, also, I'm rereading Meet Me in the Bathroom, and nice. we all know how much I love Meet Me in the Bathroom. And I think whenever I read, because it's happened before, the last time I read it, when I, when I read a book at the same time as it, because Meet Me in the Bathroom was a really like, it's like a coffee table book. You can dip in and out of it. It's all like interviews. And so I would read it maybe in conjunction with a novel or something, but I just love it so much that it makes me not love the novel that I'm reading at the same time as much. So, um, but uh, you know, big up normal people that is, it hasn't come out in the U S yet. So it comes out in April. So if people want to get onto that, please do. It came out here last year so definitely recommend that's a long like break between isn't it yeah Yeah. i'm i i didn't know that it hadn't come out in the u.s and it was Mm -hmm. only just listening to this interview that i found that out so i feel like an fascinating you know that i've got an advanced copy or something but no i just got it from the library yes so what have you been watching this month michael um so i went to an actual movie in an actual movie theater how exciting was that was this john's Um, influence again Yes, it was. It, especially because... Hmm. Every time yeah. we go to the movies, I'm like, John was there, right? Like, Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, definitely. Um, we went to see Us, which Ooh. especially his influence because I don't like horror movies. Mm. Um, but actually, it was quite great. So Us is Jordan Peele's new movie. Jordan Peele made Get Out. Like, super, super successful movie. 
Um, and it's a horror movie yet again, which is scarier than Get Out. Get Out is more oh. like a psychological thriller, whereas like yeah. this is more like pure horror. Oh, but it's funny too, so that's good. Um, and it's not unbearably scary. Like I also okay. saw Hereditary. I was forced into seeing Hereditary, and that was too scary. Mm. Did not enjoy that. But Us was fun. No. Um, and it was like a really like well-made movie. Like it was great as that. I think there was like some writing problems where you like finish the movie and you're like, wait, wait, like what happened again? Yeah. Yeah. But, like it was entertaining. And okay, well that's you on the edge of your seat. Or like me hidden underneath my scarf. Because um, <laughs> I didn't want to watch it all. Mm, no, I can't good. say I can't say I'll be going to see that one. I have Damn. actively avoided horror since I saw Final Destination three when I was like ten. And mm. that doesn't even count now. Fair but, enough. Yeah. Yeah, but if someone were um, to like horror, I would recommend this. Yeah, also, yeah, it did like amazingly well. It had the biggest first week open um, since Avatar for an independent movie or a standalone yes. movie. I so. saw something about that, and I saw some interesting commentary about it because people were saying that the way that headlines are often written about movies starring non-white people mm-hmm. is that they're surprised that the movies have made that much money. And, you know, we have to kind of question those kind of headlines or why the take on that would be, oh, we're surprised this movie has made a lot of money because that's that's not cool. So Mm -hmm. I thought that was cool that it made that much money. No, exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's obviously worth noting. It's just there's often like a kind of derogatory tone of surprise. So what's interesting about this movie, though, is it's like it's not about racism. Like Get Out is clearly about like the African American experience. This is just about like the main characters happen to be black, and that influences some of their life because it would. But it's not like that's not what the movie's about. Is that kind of like our our bay to all the boys I've loved before? Yes, kind of. Oh, we love talking about that. I did watch that again this month, but I think. We have bored everyone with our, our, <laughs> with, with our well, love. Actually, I haven't told everyone. I am on the the Kavinsky train now. I actually re- read the second book in the series, and yeah, I'm full on board. And I watched the movie again. So Peter Kavinsky forever. Um, I, just <laughs> um, I did watch. I watched a really fascinating documentary this month mm-hmm. um, called Three Identical Strangers. Have you heard of it? I have. I haven't yeah, seen it, it, but like yeah. it did the rounds last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came out last year and I, I missed it then. But essentially it's a documentary, and this is straight off Wikipedia, but it's a documentary that examines a set of American triplets born in 1961 and adopted as six-month-old infants by separate families, unaware that each child had brothers. The separations were done as part of an undisclosed scientific nature versus nurture twin study to track the development of genetically identical siblings raised in differing circumstances. The documentary reveals how the brothers discovered one another at age 19 and thereafter sought to understand the circumstances of their separation. So I adore this. It was Mm -hmm. really initially very beautiful and heartwarming to watch their success and their relationship with each other. And in particular, they all formed a really, really close relationship with one boy's adopted father who you know, really took them all in and he just seemed like mm-hmm. the most lovely man. And then they kind of discovered that it they were part of an experiment that neither them nor their adopted parents knew about. And the documentary kind of took a darker turn then and it left me feeling 
absolutely crushed and confused and outraged. Mm-hmm. Um, I read an article this week that reminded me of it. It is in Time and it's by Shelley Woods and it's about the Dion, Dion, I believe, quintuplets. Mm-hmm. Um, they're a Canadian case. Had you heard about them, Mike? I hadn't heard about them. Okay, this is literally the wildest thing. But basically, it's about these five sisters who were born in Ontario nearly 85 years ago. And they were taken into custody by the government there and grew up in like a nursery where mm-hmm. tourists flocked to see them. And they were also used to like sell a whole heap of products. They were kind of like the influencers of today, but they were used to like sell products and they were separated from their like actual family. And I think both of these, the, the documentary and the story really highlighted like the fascination that we still as a society have with multiples and how that can mm-hmm. be like, really freaking dangerous so Mm. that was fascinating i definitely recommend getting onto that documentary i also watched instant family which is a mark Wahlberg and rose Byrne movie that i took my cousin to see for her 14th birthday and it was actually a lot deeper than i thought it was i've seen this trailer in theaters and john mocked me for thinking that it looked good no, no, it looks, like, silly. Like, it just looks yeah. like one of those fluffy things that they do to, like, make a bit of money and, like, feel, like, you know, oh, yeah. what, what a family is going to do on a Sunday. We'll go see this fluffy movie. No, 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 no. It's actually, like, much deeper. And there's, um, so it's essentially about a couple who adopt three Latinx children from the same family. So there's a teenage girl mm-hmm. and her two younger siblings. And so, for example, of this being pretty deep, there's a scene where, Mark Wahlberg worries that their fostering of these children would be like a white savior situation. Like he mm-hmm. actually uses those words. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think the discussion around that could use a lot more nuance. I don't think the movie had scope to explore that yeah. in depth. If you like, I'm not an expert, but if you did want to go to something that addresses this a little bit more, the glamour podcast broken hearts that we spoke about a few episodes ago mm-hmm. that addresses this in more detail but yeah it's actually a lot deeper i cried like i legit cried mm-hmm. um and at the end it's it does actually like a really good promotion for like fostering so they like they bring up like numbers and stuff for you to like contact oh, awesome. if you if you if you're interested in it so um i think it's you know what? I really enjoyed it. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. Um, I also loved Queer Eye. Have you watched season three yet? I haven't. It's, oh, it's girl. on the list. I'm trying not to watch any TV because I know I'll like get sucked in. Yeah. I don't have time for that. No, no, no. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. Um, this is fabulous. Yeah, I actually wrote an article um, about season three. So instead of boring you with that entire spiel all over again, I'll just pop the link to that in the show notes and i also finished watching made in mexico on netflix mm-hmm. um to help me with my spanish i don't know if any of these shows are actually doing that but i'm finding them very entertaining made in mexico is literally wild it is much crazier than made in chelsea which i believe is the original kind of let's look at what rich kids are doing thing um yeah thoroughly enjoyed that it was literally crazy mm-hmm. have you been listening to anything fabulous this month 
Well, yes. So clearly when I'm stressed, I like to retreat back into things that I liked as a 12 year old or whatever. You because there's some kind of psychological thing there. I like, think there might be. I I'm not a psych coming to do there. Yeah. So, but yes, um, like mom- days after we released our most recent episode, the Jonas Brothers came out with a new song. Ah! And it came out on a day I was having like the shittiest day. Yeah. And it came out and it made me so happy. And then I spent the next week re-listening to old Jonas Brothers albums. Oh my gosh. Which made me but so happy. Their new song, Sucker, like, it's not just good. And I'm not saying it's just good because, like, I'm a nostalgic Jonas Brothers fan. It's a genuinely good pop yeah. song. And it's fun. I, have, I have long contended that Cake by the Ocean is a top five best pop song since 2010. This could be up there. Like, it's the same kind of really fun vibe. I enjoy that Nick is now the lead singer. Apparently, he's in the middle now. Yeah. Well, um, he is the most famous one, so. I mean, he was always my fave, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder how they kind of, like, rejigged that discussion. That They were like, okay, so we're reuniting, but Joe, mm-hmm. you're not the lead anymore. Mm-hmm. Like, how did, how did well, so I watched, see, in addition to listening to the <laughs> I watched a lot of interviews. Um, yes. Procrastination is my middle name some days. And it's really interesting because he admitted that he's the one who broke up the band, Nick. Nick? Um, <gasps> Nick, you Judas, why would you do this? I know. I love well, you. So the reason why they got back together, this is their narrative, it could be entirely false, and this is just what they're saying, is they filmed a documentary, and the documentary is supposed to be like, what happened after the Jonas Brothers? And then while they were making this documentary, they are like, oh, we miss each other, and want to make music, and so they, like, reunited. Who knows if this is actually true. Is the documentary still happening? Documentary. Yeah, no, it's coming out, like, in September or something. Oh, my God. I know. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. It was interesting to... Yeah, I think he was just, like, not a fan of it. I'm sure when we watch the documentary... We'll completely understand. Oh my gosh. I saw the funniest tweet, like, it's probably a year ago, and I think about it at least once a week. It was something (laughs) like... It was something like... um, I spent way too much of my childhood worrying that Nick Jonas was about to drop dead of diabetes at any moment. (laughs) Diabetes advocacy he was doing, and, like, I fully thought that was like that he was like on death's door at all times. Like I was clearly I spent, advocacy didn't work. Because <laughs> I had no idea what diabetes was. <laughs> like I obviously didn't understand it. It did not go my brain. I was just like, Nick has diabetes, that's really serious, you guys. Obviously diabetes is serious, but I was really hyper like I was like hypochondriac for Nick about that. Oh, but that is that is a good song. You're right. That is that is fabulous. Any other bangers? Yeah. So I um, went to a concert this month. I went to the Vince Ooh. Staples concert. Vince Staples is cool and weird because he's a rapper, but he doesn't listen to rap music, and he's very like, it's interesting. But so That's we cool. went to the concert. It was in a convention center, and the floor was carpets. It was very weird. That sounds and, kind of vintage. Like, yeah. No, it was so odd. Right. And then. We get there, and it was, like, a very odd vibe. I almost died in a somewhat mosh pit. That wasn't fun. Oh. It was, like, like it, they, it got to the point where they were making circles and, like, running into each other on purpose. Oh, yeah. And what was, like, insane was that he got super pissed at the crowd and was, like, don't you dare. Like, they were throwing shoes and stuff at the stage. 
and he got like really upset they were throwing things at him and the set was only like an hour long and it was supposed to be like an hour and a half to two hours he like cut something or like sped up through it because afterwards he like tweeted about it and he was like i really don't understand why you're doing this at my shows like why would you do that oh my god it was intense so yeah like brought up questions of what is good concert etiquette maybe don't throw things at people yeah i think like general civilness should be a bit the one thing that i don't really look i'm not a musician or like an artist in that performative sense so maybe my opinion's rubbish but i'm not a huge fan when like musicians are like put away your phones or like don't be on your phones or i hate when people are on, on their phones and i'm like okay, sorry, like, I, you know that tweet that's, like, um, just people having living in the moment, not a mobile phone in sight, like, whoa, I'm sorry it's not, like, the original Woodstock, like, it's 2019, people have mm-hmm. mobile phones, and people like capturing it. I think, look, I personally don't get it when someone's just sitting on their phone, holding it up, like, not even moving. Just and, like, looking. looking through the phone and not yeah. at the actual stage. I don't get that, because like why are you there but to be honest yeah. as long as they're not bothering someone else if they want to pay a hundred bucks and do that what's the problem yeah. um but i would hate if someone was like shaming me for doing that because like the bands that i go see i really freaking love and i would like like tape not a, like a, a lot but you know bits of my favorite songs and i go back and look at that like i get enjoyment out of that and mm-hmm. i'm still supporting the artist and having a great time so that kind of thing like when it borders on that a I don't really like it's obviously different for things like you know maybe like like throwing shoes yeah throwing shoes or like maybe the venue of the concert you know when sometimes when there's signs up saying no recording or whatever i'm like okay mm-hmm. well there's a sign don't do it but mm, shoes shoes is pushing don't, it my don't do shoes. this is a psa don't throw shoes yeah. <laughs> It's uh, 1985, and our after-school special is Don't Throw Shoes at Concerts, Kids. Yeah. <laughs> what did you listen to this month? What did I listen to? Um, obviously, Joe Bros. There is a new Sundara Karma album, which I've been enjoying. We'll put the link to that in the show notes. I went to see a Blur tribute band this month. Um, as I've said a thousand times, Blur are probably my favorite ever band. They occupy a very special place in my heart because I was like freaking obsessed with them as a teenager like mm-hmm. you know how people are with like Justin Bieber and like One Direction yeah I was about that I was that about like a group of like 45 year old men who had broken up like <laughs> they didn't exist at the time they got back together though and I got to see them so I went to see a tribute band and I, I loved it I had a really good time it was good I, mm-hmm. I, I haven't really seen I saw an Arctic Monkeys tribute band in Italy like a couple years ago, but I wouldn't be a big tribute band goer. And it was good just to hear the songs in a fun setting. So cool. that was that was probably the breath of my listening this month. Otherwise, just been going through the oldies. Welcome to the politics section of the podcast. Um, this month, March, is Women's History Month. It was also International Women's Day. And Yay. I thought it would be fun to talk about a badass woman from history. So this that is a fabulous a idea, Micah. It is. It requires a little bit of backstory. So my mom has been gone for a month, and she was gone for International Women's Day, but she found a present for me for International Women's Day, and they're these little dolls, like wooden dolls of, like, powerful women in history, mm-hmm. which she sent so I could, like, have them as inspiration. That is the cutest thing ever. You've got a picture of those, right? I, yeah, it was on my Instagram, but I'll, 
We'll post let's picture on our Instagram too. I yeah, let's post it to the DTCBS mm-hmm. podcast gram. But they're very cute and there's four I'm looking at them right now. Um oh. there's four uh Supreme Court justices or the four female Supreme Court justices from the states, um Harriet Tubman, and then mm-hmm. this one woman and her and I opened the package, I had no idea who she was, and I called my mom and I was like, Oh, who are who is this? And she was like, Well, I loved her dress, but actually her story is amazing. So her name is Wangari Matai. I think that's how you mm-hmm. pronounce your last name. I couldn't find it spoken aloud anywhere. We're gonna go with that. Yeah, yeah. Dr. Wangari Matai. So she is one of Kenya's most famous female activists. She was an environmentalist and a political activist, and she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2004. So that's amazing. I can't believe yeah. I've never heard of her before. Mm-hmm. Like that's really disgraceful. Had you heard of it before this? I hadn't. So oh my gosh. I think an important part of International Women's Day is like celebrating the international part of that and learning about exactly. women from a different part exactly. of the world. So yeah, she won the Nobel Peace Prize and she was the first African woman and the first environmentalist to win it. Wow. Yeah. So a little bit of background on her. She um, was born in Kenya in 1940 and um, in like this rural village and then was uh part of she got like a scholarship to go to a catholic elementary school and then she went to a catholic high school and then she was part of this um really cool like program um that was actually funded by jfk jfk when he was a my senior. boy yeah he put all this <laughs> money into it and so it sent africans to the states to get educated um fun fact uh, obama's dad was also part of the same program from kenya whose name cool. was also barack obama Mm-hmm. Mm, fun fact that I got from I didn't know that. by Michelle Obama. Get onto it, Micah. You'll love it. Something I really need to read. It's on the you list. I need to get onto that. Mm-hmm. Mm. But um, so she went to uh, the States for her BA and her MA, and then she received a PhD from the University of Nairobi. Wow. When she, yeah. And she was the first um, woman in Eastern and Central Africa to receive a PhD. That's so, so cool. cool. Wow. Yeah. This was in the 70s. Oh and, my God. Um, yeah. And the, what I think is super badass is not only did she did this, but she did this while having children. She gave birth to two kids. No, gave birth to one, was pregnant with the other while completing her PhD. So which she is was like madness. That's like more than full time. Like, that's like oversubscribing yourself. Oh, yeah. And she was like, at the same time. Facts. Oh my god. So how many lives was she living at once? Like I know, how many right? hours did you have in a day? It's insane. Incredibly so incredible. um uh kind of side note on her personal life, um she was married but then got divorced and her husband was the one who filed for divorce and his grounds for divorce was that she wasn't a good wife because she was too strong minded and he thought he couldn't control her. Which Sucks to be married to a man like that, but, like, super badass that she, like, stood up for herself in every part of her life. And, like, is that actually, like, grounds for divorce? Can you just be, like... in Nairobi, um, or in in Kenya, she, um, he won the divorce. She was upset about it and got thrown in jail for being upset about it. What? She talked to a newspaper and was, like, I don't think this was a good decision and the court yeah. found her in contempt of court and she was put in jail oh yeah. my gosh so i guess a little um bit of political background on kenya kenya um was a wow i didn't look this up british colony 
Anglican country, British colony. And um, that's very good, just off the top of your head, Michael, yeah. for some reason, look that up. I'm very impressed. If, if I'm wrong, it's either British or French, and I'm pretty sure it's British. And um, editing Micah might make a return. I might. I love her. Uh, <laughs> and I so, might. I'm sorry, she's you? What? I thought she was a separate entity. Yeah. I'm very um, upset. And so, and Kenya had a single party government for a long time. So they had elections, but there was only ever one party in charge and the elections weren't necessarily free and fair. So that kind of mm-hmm. gives you the political scene in which she's working. Yeah. Um, and then other background thing is she died of ovarian cancer in 2011, but ceremonies were held for her all over the world. So like oh, wow. in, in London and obviously in Kenya as well. So she, like, had a really big impact throughout her life. So what wow. did she do? Um, Tell me, Micah. Very exciting. Oh, right. Important thing. So her PhD was in veterinary science. Um, <gasps> so she was really interested in animals. Um, I love her, that. Her thesis was on cows. Oh! Which is cool. And she was, like, um, throughout her degree, she learned a lot about the environment. And this was the 70s. So this is kind of, like, the kicking off of the environmental movement. Yeah. And um, learned a lot about conservation and stuff like that. So while still working um, at the University of Nairobi, um, she became part of the National Council for Women in Ken- of Kenya. So a National Council for Women, they have these in a lot of countries, but in Kenya, mm-hmm. um, it's an organization with all the heads of women's organizations across the country. So Oh, that's cool. Yes. It's super cool. So Africa... Um, you never want to talk about Africa as a big conglomerate, but their women's yeah. movements actually functioned in a very like similar way. And so they had quite vocal women's move organizations in like the 50s and 60s. And then they kind of died down because of repressive governments. So she actually joined the National Council for Women when it was quite hard to be a women's movement because mm-hmm. the governments weren't really... Um, allowing them to do that much action. So that's kind of the political scene at the time. Um, so she fought to become chairperson of the organization, which was really wow. kind of the beginning of her fight with the government because yeah. they didn't really want her in the head of that. Um, her and particularly? Like, her particularly. Like, they didn't like her as a person. What was their reasoning for that? Um, she was very pro-democracy. Right, okay. Yeah. So she... Um, really was outspoken and thought that people should have the right to say what they want and to vote for who they want. And they weren't a big fan of that. So she became chairperson of the organization. And uh, at that point, they lost quite a bit of money. So um, for both financial and political reasons, they transitioned from solely being about like women's organizations and like helping women specifically to working in environmental work. Um, So she was like a women focus or how does that kind of... Like what focused? Like still with a women's focus or how does yes. like they just Okay. She kind of All married right. her two like deep interests, which is women's empowerment and helping the environment together. Oh, okay, right. Because yep. for a second I thought they just kind of were like, We're a women's organization. <laughs> but we're not gonna like, talk about actually we're about the environment. And everyone was like, Well, this isn't what I signed up for. What are you talking about? No, okay. so she this is this is kind of why she's so cool. She marries these two things really interestingly. Mm. So she started um the Green Belt movement around the same time. Um, she was head of the National Council for Women until it dissolved. Um, and then right. 
went on to start the Green Belt Movement. So the Green Belt Movement started in 1977 and was funded by a forestry guy from Norway and partly from the UN. The UN has like a big role in Kenya and funding mm-hmm. a lot of things. And this is straight from their website because they still exist now. Um, their main focus is poverty reduction and environmental conservation through tree planting. But they do this through empowering women. So a lot of what they do is they pay women to plant trees. Oh, um, oh that's cool. Right. Like a lot of um, not pre-industrialized, in the process of industrializing nations, uh, like their forests are just completely ravaged. And so yeah. Kenya like was really lacking that. And there was a huge amount of like not having forests means not having water. It means not having food. It means having less animals around yeah yeah yeah. forests are important so throughout um since it was started in 1977 the green belt movement has assisted women in planting over 51 million trees wow yeah i love it super cool um they also did these really cool things that they still do today they're seminars and they call them community empowerment and education seminars and mm-hmm. so they encourage people to talk about what it's like to live in their communities and what problems they have and how they could be empowered and they get them to work together to kind of solve these problems so like through that. this um, process of talking they realized that one of the big problems is that the government wasn't there for them and wasn't democratic and so this is how the green belt movement became not only an environmental movement, but a political movement. Political, right. Um, and around this time, this is when um, Dr. Mahati, Mahatai, this is how we're going to pronounce yeah, it. Well, <laughs> she decided at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't, fun feminist woman's history fact is for four, for four decades, every 10 years, there was a woman's conference. And the third women's conference, oh wait, second women's conference, sorry, my math is wrong, <laughs> Mexico, Copenhagen, Nairobi. Third okay. women's conference was held in 1985 in Nairobi. Kenya. You kind of spoiled that surprise, though, with your, yeah. with your allowed maths. Mexico, Copenhagen, Nairobi. <laughs> oh, it's in, it's in Nairobi. It's in Nairobi. <laughs> totally no. So she... <laughs> Um, really started promoting her work there and got other countries to see what she was doing and how helpful it was for women and for the environment and it spread to other African nations as well as other nations around the world. Um, So she's getting this big public voice, people around the world know who she is and the government starts to really start opposing them. So because one of their main goals was democracy promotion and the government wasn't democratic, they had quite a few um, problems with them. Um, in 1993, there, after one of the elections, these ethnic conflicts came out and there's quite a bit of violence in Kenya. And mm-hmm. so um, Dr. Mahate went to um, one of the conflict zones and started planting trees of peace to kind of bring oh, wow. to the fact that like hurting each other is not the answer in this situation yeah. and that like they actually need to focus on government and what the government is doing yeah um the other thing they do to protest the government is the protesting of privatization and development of land so the government was really into selling land to big corporations to be like denuded of trees and have big buildings put up so they like went and she was arrested a bunch of times for protesting yeah wow um and so this she's literally a badass such a badass 
Um, so this kind of government repression of the Greenbelt movement and of Dr. Mahate, um, Mahatai. Um, <laughs> I can't pronounce any names. How uh, am I mind? Yeah, I know. Um, so in 1992, this list was published by the Kenyan government that um, had a list of dissidents that they wanted killed, and she was on the list. Oh, jeez. What? Yeah. So she barricaded in her home for three days with her children, and her home was surrounded oh. by police, and then she was sent to jail when they finally broke through her door. Yeah. That's um, horrific. I know. Welcome to non-democratic governments. Um, it's mad that you could just publish a list of people you want killed and everyone was just gonna like, oh, like I think not it even was being like, overt about it. Like imagine not even being covert about the fact that I like it it wasn't like published published, but like everyone knew about it and it like came out and they were like ready to stop me like resistance. It was intense. Mad. I know. So um she was in prison and because she now has this international reputation, the international outcry like was really right. there to support her so it was, uh, people like senator al gore um like stood up and said you can't do this yeah and so she was released from prison and instead of like going about her life she decided no i'm gonna have a hunger strike so that the other people who are still in prison can be released too wow yeah so she's pretty pretty badass and so um in 2002 she decided to enter formal politics which seems weird she's been fighting the government but it um yeah but you know sometimes you have to change from within yeah no exactly so um one of the big things of democratic transitions in these kind of one party african nations is that they start opening up and allowing for dissenting parties to kind of like appease the people and then this opening mm. up kind of makes it so that all of a sudden the dictatorship just doesn't function anymore which is really cool that had like a really good name like a russian name you know when it happened in russia when they started like to appease the people they were like oh yeah yeah they were like we'll just give you a little bit of a nibble and they were like oh oh no everyone likes the nibbles they've eaten our hand off communism this is kind of a um a common feature of the transition from non-democracy to democracy right um okay so this was she and she'd been kind of campaigning for united opposition and so in 2002 she runs for this opposition party and wins her riding with 98 percent of the vote wow say 98 percent i wonder it'd be hard push to find an election that had that other than a non-democratic one yeah yeah true yeah so uh nelson mandela get i have no idea we'll do some googling on that well well, well, you have to remember that white people could vote too so Mm. yeah but yes um when she when she was elected um that was the end of the uh one party dominance of the kenyan african national union which was the party was called which was like a big step for um, Kenya. And she became the assistant minister of the environment and so continued to do environmental work in government. Um, And then obviously in 2004, she won her Nobel Peace Prize. And from 2004 until her death in 2011, she worked, continuously worked for the Greenbelt Movement. She um, was part of a Yale, um, like, research group about the environment. and like has like this amazingly long list of honorary doctorate degrees, which is pretty cool. Wow. And she's she was just a 
awesome woman who like really stood up for what she believed in. Yeah, I admire that so much. Yeah, so I thought it was a good idea for everyone to learn a little bit about her, and we'll post a picture of the cute peg doll that my mom sent me. Yeah, please do. I'm I'm so happy that you've like told us about like something that up until a few weeks ago neither of us knew anything about. I think that's really nice for us to learn together, and you know, I think there's a good chance that most of our listeners have never heard of her either and as you said if it's meant to be international women's day it's about broadening the focus beyond what it has traditionally been when we think of (laughs) of feminists who have really impacted history so i think that's fantastic thank you so much for telling me about this fabulous woman micah you're welcome Alrighty, well, on to the pop culture segment of this episode, and I'm going to be talking about something that Mike and I both hold very near and dear to our hearts, books. Mm-hmm. In particular, a bit of bookish news coming out of my Australian home city of Melbourne, and that is that the state government of Victoria announced the decision to retire the name, I'll get into a little bit more. Mm-hmm of the Center for Youth Literature. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit to talk about why this is significant and explain basically what the Center for Youth Literature is. (laughs) So (laughs) essentially Melbourne is like a total literary city. I think it's actually listed as like one of like the global literary cities. And in particular, its young adult fiction scene is really, really vibrant. So when I was like, you know, reading a lot of YA I decided to go to a couple of events, like, you know, author talks and book launches and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I quickly found that I was running into a lot of the same people. And that these weren't people who were just like, oh, I'll just go along and look at the book. There were people who were, you know, online, like blogging or vlogging about books. They were like setting up advocacy groups and like organizing festivals. And they were, you know, interning at publishing houses. So basically like super, super active, super passionate and super enthusiastic. And it was so lovely to find this community and one way that this community kind of convened was through the programs and promotions put together by the center for youth literature and this center was originally established in 1991 as the youth literature project and its aim was to promote reading among australian teens so in 1999 it relocated to the state library um, so the State Library of Victoria, if you haven't seen it, it's absolutely stunning. It's an mm-hmm. amazing building in Melbourne. It's all over the ground. Um, so it's like physically in there, and it was called the Centre for Youth Literature then. And at its peak, it had roughly three full-time equivalent staff. So as YA author Michael Pryor said on Twitter, I first worked with the Centre for Youth Literature way back in 1997. We were the envy of others, not just for the program, but because the powers that be acknowledged that we didn't just support youth literature, we had a center. So yeah, it really was this very significant epicenter of the whole YA scene in, in Melbourne. So this month, a newsletter came out from the center, and it was the final newsletter, and it said that the sub-brand, so that's what they were calling the Center for Youth Literature, the sub-brand, would cease to exist, but the teen programming would be brought under the broader state library banner that's quoting the sydney morning herald newspaper there so the library basically was going to look after everything that the center for youth literature had been looking after and it would continue like i said it would continue doing everything Mm -hmm. um like 
there was the Reading Matters conference. That was I actually saw Jennifer Niven there a few years ago. And that was fantastic. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So they're like you know really important events like this. And the State Library's Director of Library Services and Experience, Justine Hyde, said, "We're not axing it. We're simply changing the name." So if that's kind of the case, then like what's the problem? Well, it turns out it's kind of a fair few problems. So first of all, it was the announcement of the end upset a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So YA author, agent, and editor Danielle Bink said on Twitter, I take umbrage with the term subbrand to describe the Center for Youth Literature, a national advocacy body. Something very important has been lost, and an announcement in a newsletter is one thing. The language of disrespect is another. And you know what? I, I get that. I think the term subbrand stings so much because YA is often like devalued. You know, there's countless mm-hmm. countless stories of YA authors being asked when they're going to write a real book, or even I'm sure you and I have encountered when we you know we read a lot of YA, yeah. um, people being like, oh, what are you what are you doing that for? And I think the creation of the Center for Youth Literature really fought that, and then the language and you know the phrase subbrand really does the opposite um writer letha singleton norton also wrote on twitter i wish there had been consultation with the community before this decision had been made it feels as though it has been done without a full understanding of how this will impact stakeholders or how the transition would could be eased which is baffling so yeah this kind of very brief anticlimactic announcement in a newsletter really defies the idea of community that the center was about and it also creates a lot of confusion about what is going to happen in the future so for example there's a worry that because now ya programming is coming under the state library that research resources are going to get eaten up or that not mm-hmm. enough attention is going to be given to the ya audience because obviously the state library has got a billion other things that they have to think about and audiences they have to cater for. So um, Mike Shuttleworth wrote a really fantastic piece about this. He is a children and youth literature specialist who was the program manager at the Center for Youth Literature from 2002 to 2010. And he did a lot of work with the Melbourne Writers Festival as well. So he said, the effect may well be the independent voice for teenage literature will be silenced since it appears there will be no dedicated staff actively working in the Centre for Youth Literature. In Victoria, we have no professional organisation dedicated to the promotion of children and youth literature. We have the Wheeler Centre, but like the State Library of Victoria, public libraries, festivals and the Wheeler Centre serve many audiences. Young people's literature is just one. So that's like one worry that this really kind of random and brief announcement has caused. Another Mm -hmm. is that it could genuinely affect whether teenagers keep reading or not without the support of a dedicated center. So YA author Lily Wilkinson, who also founded Inside a Dog, which is a community hub for bookish teens, and she also founded the Inky Awards for YA fiction. So she's very, very um, active in the community. Cool. She told the Sydney Morning Herald, the research all says that if you lose young people as readers, as teenagers, the chances of them coming back to reading down the track are very low. And I think that's that sounds like something that I've even witnessed kind of in mm-hmm. schools, right? In the it seemed everyone kind of liked reading in primary school and then we got to high school and like 
people weren't encouraged or there was a lot of really unrelatable or like unattainable or inaccessible texts that were yeah that really put people off reading and i think without a center to support the change there Mm -hmm. we're going to see more of that happening oh yeah yeah and there's also this idea that like as i mentioned that this center was like a real hub for young people in melbourne it's like also where a lot of teenagers got the industry connections to do all the cool things i mentioned so there's Mm -hmm. you know future careers at stake like if people aren't being put in contact with publishers and editors and authors you know are they going to be able to get those internships and that kind of thing anymore we're really losing like a like a centralized body there so i think the one of the most prominent arguments that's coming up is that teens really need their own space and by bringing Mm -hmm. it under the center for youth literature sorry the center for youth literature under the state library of victoria you're kind of erasing that designated space that they had so danielle binks who i mentioned before she wrote about this fantastically in a 2016 article for junior books and publishing she pointed out that at the 2015 nielsen children's book summit in the u.s it was revealed that 80 percent of young adult titles are being bought by adults and not as gifts but like literally for themselves Mm so ya is actually mainly not being read by teenagers it's being read by adults and like that's fantastic because like it can and should be enjoyed by everyone and it's fantastic that the books are so widely loved and this means that there's more money in the industry which means more great books but it could also mean that teenagers feel like uncomfortable or uncatered to at events yeah you know if we're finding out that the majority of the audience are adults are we going to have like book events that are happening in the middle of the day during the week when kids are when teenagers are at school Mm -hmm. or Or are they going to be like wine events like yeah yeah like that they actually or is it going to be in a venue that the kids legally or kids kids and you know young adults really can't get into like they're Mm -hmm. not legally meant to be there is it going to be that even if it's all fine that they're going to be sitting around with so many adults that they feel like uncomfortable or that the discussion is going in directions that's not really catered to for them catered to them so that's been like a real concern and um melbourne writer david uh widevine coined the frame coined the phrase teens to the front which is kind of like kathleen hannah's girls to the front in the 90s which was like called to make gigs more female friendly mm-hmm. and so yeah teens to the front is like a real big thing and danielle sums it up fabulously at the end of this article when she says that teens to the front is about giving teens agency and creating a welcoming space for them within the book community. It's not a request for adults to the, to depart the YA readership or stop reading the books altogether. It's just about making sure that teenagers, you know, have that, have that space. Um, so my bookish pal Zana, who I met at the launch for Lily Wilkinson's after the lights go out, which came out last year and was one of my favorite books. Um, she is 18 and she wrote to Victoria's creative industries minister, Martin Foley, asking him to stop public institutions from slowly erasing places for teenagers to love and talk about books. So the Sydney morning Herald quoted a bit of her letter. They said, um, in her letter, she wrote, I want other young people to have the same opportunities in the future that I did. I am defending their voices just as much as I am mine. 
I hope you reconsider or at least take into consideration the negative effects these actions will have. At the end of the day, it's about the Center for Youth Literature not just being a space, but a community. So you can see how this idea of like community and Mm -hmm. the idea of like a safe space can really be lost when there's not a like designated body to ensure that it won't be. Also, like even their social media pages are being like shut down. So there's not even like those kind of online spaces anymore to talk in. So that's basically where everyone's coming from. You know, originally it does sound like, oh, we're just retiring the name. Everything's going to remain the same. But is it really if we haven't got the experience and the expertise and the time and attention to ensure that these services are being carried out to the best of their ability and that there's, you know, a really welcoming, positive space for teenagers to be. So I guess the thing is, like, what now? Well, one solution is for teens to get the assurance that not only will the services not change, but there will be dedicated staff who have experience and expertise and they can give YA the time and attention that the teens of Melbourne need. So I think there is this real need for clarity and hopefully by keeping this in public conversation and tweeting about it and writing letters like Zana has and that'll prompt the State Library to really make solid plans and publicize those plans about how they're going to meet the needs of Melbourne teenagers. There's also an idea that Mike Shuttleworth put on the table, and that is that a properly resourced independent organization needs to be established. So he's under the impression that it shouldn't all be the State Library of Victoria's responsibility. He has pointed to examples where an independent organization has been established. He said that in Ireland, the Netherlands, and Sweden, they all have agencies dedicated solely to promoting reading and national literature, each funded directly by their respective arts councils. He also pointed to the Eric Carle Museum in Massachusetts. And basically, he also did say that with something completely new being established, there's an enormous amount of work that's going to Mm -hmm. go into it. He said that it's going to need the support and backing of key organizations in the arts and community sector education, libraries, local government, publishing, and literary organizations. It will need government and philanthropic support, and it will need its own fundraising efforts. So it it's a big undertaking. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you want to get involved and, you know, make a difference and get one of these solutions to be taken very seriously – I think the first step is getting clarity on what is happening and whether what they have decided or what they're planning is going to meet the needs of Melbourne teenagers. And the second step then will be um, creating ideas for either this or for something completely new. So I'm like not based in Melbourne anymore, obviously. Um, So I'm probably not the most connected person to this. So I'm going to pop a list of people in the show notes who I think you should all follow on Twitter and Instagram and they will be talking about it more because this conversation is going to be evolving. As I said, we're definitely at that kind of like think tank phase at the moment where it's just Mm -hmm. about like finding out what is going on, what do we want, and how can we like marry those two together? Um, so yeah, people that I've mentioned before, Danielle Bingsley, Wilkinson, Michael Pryor, and um, Zana, I think are all going to be 
ones that you should follow. I will pop all their social handles in the show notes. Um, but I think this is one that we need to keep watching and we will post about it on the different things can be sad um, mm-hmm. socials as well because I just think it's really important that we, we get a solution to this and it doesn't just fade away from public discourse as yeah. unfortunately so many things seem to do as new events arise. But I think it's important that we get this clarity and that we come up with some ideas and that Melbourne teenagers get what they really deserve because it's, yeah. really, it's, it's really sucky to see, you know, so much of the teenage experience is about not being understood or about being in that awkward bit between being like a child and being an adult, which are two kind of areas that I think are really catered to mm-hmm. in all realms of life. So I think it's important that for teens' sake, because, you know, I've benefited from the service, that the teens of the future do as well. Alrighty, well, that is a, another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad done. I am kind of laughing because you did point out last time that I always <laughs> end this with alrighty, as if I'm Trey McDougall. Um, but yeah, alrighty, Michael, what are you going to be up to in the next month before we hear from you again, literally? Yeah, uh, I'll be finishing my undergrad, which is terrifying. <sighs> and I will be doing some traveling, so it'll be a good time. You are traveling to... New York City. Well, I never go there. New York. Oh my gosh. Micah is, she's literally never been to New York ever in her never. life. Um, what, what, are there five boroughs, six boroughs? I'm not really sure. Actually, apparently there used to be a six borough. I actually like stumbled on a New York Times oh, cool. article about that this week. I was, I literally have no idea how that happened. Um, so guys, if you guys have like um, recommendations, I think, oh my God, I been to Shake Shack. So, you know, give her really yeah, like that. Tell her like, to go to the Empire this, State Building. There's huh? this square with lights in it. Not totally sure what it's called. Clock Square. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Watch Square. Watch. Yeah. This is the cheesiest dad jokes ever. <laughs> I don't think, like, we're not even very good at them. Um, well, I hope you have a fabulous time in New York. I am going to Northern Ireland this weekend. Um, thankfully, Brexit has been <laughs> delayed. Because I was like, mm. It just it seems like a very confusing time to be <laughs> going in the border. Yeah, right. Um, mm-hmm. So no, that has been postponed. Because um, yeah, so I'm gonna go up there with a friend. I have been once before to go to the Titanic exhibition there, but we're oh. gonna go to Belfast. We're gonna do a big tour, and we're gonna go to the Giant's Causeway, which I'm very excited about. Um, so you can follow all my adventures on the gram. I am at Yasmin Lomax. What are you, Micah? I'm at Ms. Clearwater. And together we're at Different <laughs> Things Can Be Sad, which is at DTCBS Podcast on Instagram. We're not really using Twitter that much anymore. Um, but the grams, the grams really hop in. You can also mm-hmm. always feel free to send us article recommendations because we do like sharing those on a Sunday. So anything pop culture or politicsy that is in a publication, send our way and we'll give her a share. Mm-hmm. Until next time, we will well until next time, yeah, you'll you'll hear from us. I'm sorry, it's getting late at night here. My greetings are, are really subpar. Until next time. Bye folks. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.